You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Go ahead and get your Bibles out or your John journal. If you're new-ish, if you've been here since January, you may not have picked up a John journal. So I'll suggest it, but then I may say, hold off. But if you want to pick up a John journal, ESV uh, publishers, Crossway, have put out this little... If you've got your journal, wave it so other people can see it. Um, there are two versions. There's a pretty version and the plain version. Uh, and inside the John journal is just the text of John in the ESV on one page, and then blank page on the other side. And we're going to be continuing to walk through the book of John for the rest of this year. If you don't have one, you could get one on Amazon, or we'll probably be getting some more later in the fall, but then it's first come, first serve, so you take the risk of whether you're here in time to get one or not. And I will remind you that we go back to two services next Sunday. And so set your clocks accordingly, prime your kids accordingly. Uh, my kids have to be here for both. And so Jesse always says, do we have two services? And I have to answer him appropriately. So I'm going to have to say yes next week, uh, and he'll be fine. And uh, I've been with students for the last week, so I apologize if any slang slips in or my tone is a little different than usual. Um, but I've been in Red Springs. Anybody know where Red Springs is? Okay, a few of you. It's, there's not much there. It's kind of triangulated in between Lumberton and uh, Rayford, if you've been down south of Fayetteville. Uh, but it's in Robinson County, which is the largest and poorest county in North Carolina. And so North Carolina Baptists have a mission camp there that serves as like a hub for disaster recovery, especially uh, for eastern North Carolina. Because it's right off of 95. You can mobilize there. You can get lumber and tools and supplies and then head directly to wherever has been affected. Then, of course, two years ago, Hurricane Matthew directly affected Robinson County. And they're still recovering from that. So the students were able to go out into uh, 10 minutes away and re-roof, repaint, in some cases demo. Uh, They also did a VBS at an apartment complex specifically for uh, women who have been abused and their children. And so it's a really great uh, week to spend uh, in Red Springs. Uh, I got to hang out as well with some of the staff who were with with our students in Cuba just a couple weeks ago. So Michael and Stephanie, say hi. Um, I spent most of this week talking about Titus 2. And it should be no surprise that there are actually some themes in Titus and themes from our text that are resonant because it's all in the scripture. But I was still a little surprised. But in particular, the themes of the gospel's interaction with culture were prevalent to me as I read through both of these texts. So I wore a different Star Wars shirt every day of camp, um, and I probably could have done that for eight weeks straight without doing any laundry. Uh, And some of you, like me, and many people on the internet, uh, have strong opinions about episode eight, The Last Jedi. (laughs) I already have an amen. It's good. So it's directed by Ryan Johnson, so not J.J. Abrams, but Ryan, and And if you couldn't care less about Star Wars, just hang with me for a minute, okay? I promise this will make sense. So in my opinion, one of the main reasons that The Last Jedi was so divisive among fans is because the the movie subverted expectations. So some folks had like certain plot points that they expected to see happen in this film, and when the director set up the viewer and then didn't do the things that everybody expected, uh, it has this polarizing effect. Some people 
expected Luke to have more obvious power as a Jedi, or they didn't expect Leia to have any Jedi abilities, or they expected Rey's parents to be revealed, to have a certain kind of meaning, and the director subverted every single one of those. So I was fine with the film, uh, because I was willing to let the director tell whatever story he wanted to. Uh, but because the film subverted the expectations of viewers, it had this polarizing effect. Either you liked it, or maybe loved it, like critics did, or you were viscerally frustrated with it, and you would even say you hated it. So you can probably anticipate some of the similarities that I'm going to draw out from our text, if you've been hanging with me. Jesus' entire ministry was one of subverting cultural expectations for a Messiah. He did not behave like some of the Jewish people expected him to behave, and it drove some of them nuts. So in order to best understand what's happening here in John 7, we must remember our context. So go ahead and turn to John 7, if you're not there already in your journal or Bible. We're up to John 7. But keep your finger there, and then flip back to John 1. Because the context reaches all the way back to the opening statement for John's defense of Jesus' identity, right? This whole thing is a courtroom in which we are the jurors of a sort. And John is bringing witness after witness to the stand to testify to who Jesus is and what he said and what he did that demonstrated who he is. So verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness is not overcoming. And then jumping to verses 9 through 11. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus is the pre-existent word of God, the Son who is one with the Father and the Spirit. The darkness cannot overcome the light of the world. But the world did not know him. Even his own people did not recognize him at first. So we must keep this in mind as we read through the text of John 7 this morning. Because we're about to see illustrated for us what John prepared us for way back in the prologue. The people of Galilee, people of Judea, even his own family, they would all reject him. In John 6, over the last several weeks, Pastor Brad has helped us process the hard teachings of Jesus that also had a polarizing effect. In chapter 6, we find Jesus subverting expectations in the ways that he refers to sustenance, to his body, to his blood. You got to eat it, you got to drink it. Some people wanted him to have very specific meaning and defense for the signs that he'd been performing, but Jesus did not fulfill those expectations the way they wanted. So now as we move to John 7 through 8, uh, both these chapters have a connected narrative timeline. So we actually have a pretty specific temporal context to keep in mind over the next several sermons too. So while we're here in John 7 and 8, here's the context. As has been the case thus far, John gives us a really specific time frame for this snippet of Jesus' ministry. It's during the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast Festival of Booths. 
So this takes place during the fall. And I know what Pastor Brad was probably thinking as he read this, because I was too. But a festival of booths that takes place in the fall in the capital city that lasts over a week was not the Jewish state fair. But almost. <laughs> almost. Because this feast was literally known in the ancient world as the feast. It was an eight-day festival in which families came together to camp out and celebrate God's provision in the wilderness wanderings. So just recently, you know, scrolling through the old Facebooks, getting back from camp, trying to catch up with life, uh, I saw a picture of the core family setting up a tent in their living room for one of their grandkids. And we have a tent on our front porch, I think it's currently on our front porch as well, for the kids to hang out in and try to get away from the sun a little bit. But imagine having a week-long family campout. So the term booths comes from the fact that families would set up temporary shelters and camp out and worship and pray and eat. And this physical building of a booth would remind them of the tabernacle and would remind them of the wandering that had happened for the people of God, in which God provided the whole time. So just as I can say the fair, and you know what that entails, you can almost smell it when I say it, the original readers of John's gospel would see the feast and they'd know all about how great a time this was. And some of the other practices during the festival that give it rich significance in the life of God's people. But some of the details will come in the next several weeks as we continue to walk through 7 and 8. So if you've never looked into like, what happens at the festival of, of booths or of tabernacles, you should totally check it out uh, as we preach through John 7 and 8. But right now, would you stand with me as we read John 7, 1 through 31. This is a longer text than... As is typical, so if you need to sit down, you are free to. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you're doing. For no one who works in secret, if he seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. 
Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you be seated? Right here at the beginning, Jesus subverts the expectations of his brothers, of the Jews or Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and all the people at large. Throughout this text, we see that Jesus knows and does the will of his Father, despite the competing expectations of his family and the people. Jesus knows and does the will of his Father, despite the competing expectations of his family and of the people. So let's walk through the text. Uh, and then I'll conclude with the idea that as we do the will of the Father, following Jesus, we will better know him and our place in his story. So right at the beginning of this text, we find that Jesus' brothers have certain expectations of him. If you want followers, then do something that can go viral, Jesus. There's a lot of people who will be in Jerusalem for the fair, I mean the feast, and you can probably get tons of exposure and people will be talking all about it. If you do something great like that wine thing or the healing thing, come on, bro. But basically, Jesus' brothers project onto him what they would do with the power that Jesus demonstrates. They're operating from a different set of background assumptions about how the world's supposed to be and what the good life is. And that's exactly how expectations can be subverted. If Jesus' brothers had expectations rooted in the notion that flexing one's power equals the good life, then Jesus is about to completely flip their mental tables. Jesus is operating out of the true story of how the world works with a vision of the good life that's driving him inexorably to Jerusalem in the coming years, and not just for the feast. Jesus is operating with a, a different social imaginary than his brothers. So social imaginary is a term coined by philosopher Charles Taylor to capture the idea that there are certain things that function in the background of our minds that like tacitly shape our actions. And they're shared between people in a culture. So social and imaginary. It's, it's the story of the good life that we buy into and then begin to live out. So Jesus' brothers have bought into the story that fame and power and strength made life better. And so they unconsciously almost suggest, hey, you should do this. It's a no-brainer. They weren't really thinking about it, 
They were just speaking out of the background assumptions that they have about how the world's supposed to work. But Jesus knows the good life better than they do. He had everything while in the presence of God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. He knew what creation was supposed to be like before the fall. And he knows what's coming when creation is made new. And he also knew what it was going to take for that to happen. So we definitely have a social imaginary that's captured the American imagination, the American dream. It's a set of assumptions that we just have, that we expect the world to work for us in certain ways. We have a vision of the good life, and we live our lives in that direction. So the question is, are we, as God's people, living into the Christian social imaginary? Do we have God's vision, the biblical vision of the good life, capturing our imagination? Or have we bought into a different story of how the world's supposed to work? A way to answer that question is ultimately in our text. Because what's well, you don't really see this coming after you hear them say this, but Jesus' brothers didn't even believe in him. So they you know, dare him, basically, to go show off, but it betrays the fact that they didn't even believe in him. So how strange they would do something so brash as to perform a sign or miracle in Jerusalem. This is their, their fundamental misunderstanding of Jesus, betrays their lack of true belief. Their suggestion reveals their true motivations. There are true expectations for what is the good life and who the Messiah is supposed to be. And Jesus' response is actually pretty patient. Like, he lets them know that they can come and go as they please. No one's looking to kill them, so they have nothing to fear if they just go and come from Jerusalem. But Jesus can't move quite that freely while the leaders there are on the lookout for them. And then I love how in this text he gives them basically a be careful what you wish for answer. Because Jesus' teaching exposes the darkness in mankind. He is the light of the world. So the brothers basically said, uh, hey, why don't you go and be the light in Jerusalem for everybody? Hey, Jesus, go shine your light on everyone. They didn't really know what they're asking. Because for some people, for including me, it's, it's painful and shocking to have your sin exposed. It was and is countercultural to name sin as such and to point to God as the only hope for mankind. So here they are telling Jesus, go shine your light on everybody, not realizing what they're actually asking for. But Jesus ultimately does go up to Jerusalem, but in his own timing. And certainly you recognize that theme throughout the scripture, that God has his own timing for accomplishing his purposes. And that plays itself out in our lives in so many different ways, and it played itself out in Jesus' life. And as I read this text, I can kind of picture Jesus, you know, with, maybe with his head covering on, walking with the crowds of people through the street. Remember, it's, it's state fair time, so it's pretty crowded, almost shoulder to shoulder in some spots. And so Jesus overhears some folks say, this Jesus of Nazareth, he's a good man. And I imagine Jesus with a grin on his face just shaking his head, since they don't quite get it. And then he overhears, Jesus is leading so many people astray. And he frowns. And he sets his eyes on the temple. And he goes there. 
as Jesus steps into the temple court, begins to teach, some folks ask, how are you able to teach with this kind of authority? Jesus answers them in, in simple terms. His teaching is from the one who sent Jesus. Jesus wasn't citing commentators like I am right now. This insight is actually from Michael Card. <laughs> and Jesus is not citing the rabbis who had taught the Bible or their precedents that they had set in their writings. Jesus was citing only the Bible in ways that were clear, cogent, and compelling. He was citing the one who sent him. And so those who knew Jesus was from the tribe of Judah could be forgiven for questioning his training a little bit because it was those in the tribe of Levi who had no land to worry about. They were the ones that were expected to spend all their time studying the scriptures and preparing in the temple. Yet here is a carpenter from Judah who demonstrates even more understanding of God's word. So now, when Jesus then says in the text, uh, these words are not mine, we may wonder, how can Jesus, the Son of God, say that? However, it's, it's similar to, you know, I could say that my four kids are not mine. Not in the Billie Jean way, of course, but I mean to say that my wife, <laughs> my children, my home, they're not really mine. In the bigger picture, I'm to care for them because they come from God, the only good giver of gifts. So the words that Jesus says are his, but also his, God the Father's, the one who sent Jesus. Jesus is not undermining his divinity by saying this. He's emphasizing the relationships of the Trinity. Because everything he does and says is in conjunction with the Father and the Spirit. And even though Yahweh is not named here, everyone listening is picking up what Jesus is putting down. Jesus suggests that those who do God's will are able to know and understand what Jesus is saying. Because that, that's actually kind of interesting. Rather than knowing, producing the doing, Jesus says, do, and then you'll know. So we are more than just brains on sticks, right? An idea that began with Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Uh, and this is pointed out to me in another work by James K. Smith. He reminds us that we are embodied beings. And our bodies are so important that God will raise them up on the last day. We will be embodied for eternity. We are human beings, human doings, not human thinkings. So, of course, as we do, we will know and we'll learn. And on one level, doing God's will simply means listening. Listening to the word of God. On another level, doing God's will means obeying what God has revealed. And if you're not sure what that might be, Micah 6.8 is certainly a starting point. Jesus ends this section by saying that none of you, meaning the leaders and maybe every one of us, none of you keeps the law of Moses. Then he mentions that some seek to kill him. And so in a big crowd like this, there were definitely some who had not heard yet about this killing business. So they just think he's overreacting and maybe a little bit crazy at this point. So then they accuse him of having a demon, which is no small accusation, actually. It's not an off-the-cuff just thing you throw out there. It's kind of serious. And in fact, it's the most serious charge leveraged against Jesus so far in the book of John. And the charge is just going to get worse and more serious as we head into the second half of the gospel. But at this point, things are already starting to escalate. 
that one word that Jesus references here, he says that one thing has got you all riled up. It stirred up the leaders. It's, he's referring to the healing that took place in John 5. So again, for context, if you were not here for that, go back and listen to our sermons through John 5. But in particular, the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath. So Jesus is still catching flack from the leaders for what happened there. This is months later, most likely. But yet again, Jesus clarifies, and he basically says, if I'm breaking the Sabbath, then so are you. If you're keeping the Sabbath, then so am I. And frankly, that is brilliant and simple logic. Jesus knows the law, and indeed he fulfills it and keeps it perfectly. And he uses it in his defense. He doesn't quite end with a, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, but I imagine that's where this phrase came from. Because to judge rightly is to submit to God's judgment, to God's perspective. He's the only impartial one. The arguments that continue to ensue among the people that are captured here by John, they reveal to us the social imaginary of the Jewish people, especially their expectations for a Messiah. Because for some reason, it had gotten into their minds that they wouldn't know where the Messiah was coming from. Now, that's actually, there's a, there's a lot of irony all through John, and this is one of those really ironic statements, that they wouldn't know where Messiah was from. Because on the one hand, think back about 30 years to uh, the three wise men. They should know where the Messiah was to come from, because those guys did. And so on the one hand, we see the scripture prophesize he would be from Bethlehem. But, well, and he would also be from the tribe of Judah. Like, we see all these things in scripture. However, on the other hand, so on the one hand, we know where he came from. On the other hand, no one has seen the Father except Jesus. No one knows what it's like where Jesus came from. So we'll encounter several other messianic expectations that Jesus subverts as we move through the rest of John. And this is only one of them. But Jesus subverts this expectation of a mysterious Messiah by, be, by being both a known quantity and a mystery. Jesus then says, you know me. You know where I've come from, and yet you don't. Jesus indicates Yahweh again without using his name. And he says, I know him. You don't. He sent me. And although the leaders feel that that's like a slap in the face. And they get fired up to capture him and punish him. Because it's this upstart saying these things in the temple. They can't touch him. Not yet. Jesus' time is coming soon, but for whatever reason, they're not able to take hold of him. It could be that you know, the crowds, the large crowds, allow Jesus to move and get away from the Pharisees and their servants. It could be the Holy Spirit's intervention. It could be some combination of both. But either way, Jesus' time had not yet come. However, everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, was aimed at accomplishing what God had sent him to do. He was living into the story that God was telling. He was doing the will of the Father, demonstrating obedience and inviting his followers to do the same thing. So this morning, let me conclude our time by asking you, his followers, a question and then giving you a challenge. What story are you participating in? If you're participating in a story where you are the hero, 
and you're on the hero's journey, you know, the archetype story for the Star Wars films, and indeed most heroic story arcs, there are certain things you'll expect to happen in your life. You'll have to leave home as if you're going to college. You'll encounter difficulties. You'll have a wise helper like Burt Wallace with a beard. And you'll have victory and then return home with your degree and with a treasure won. But if that's your story, if that's the story you're living into, what happens when you don't have the victory? What happens when you encounter difficulties that are beyond your capacity? What happens when the plot isn't playing out like you expected it to? Or are you participating in solely the American dream? The middle class life of home ownership and two cars and kids and a pet or two and retirement account. That's all there is. What happens when you get fired or you lose your home or you can't have kids or your pet bites you or your retirement is non-existent because you had to pay your debt collectors? Those are the stories that our culture is telling us are the good life, the hero, the American dream. Those are the background assumptions that can drain us, confuse us, and at best distract us. The gospel is the true story of the world, a bigger story than either of those. The God of all creation loved you, loved you enough to sacrifice his son in your place in order to adopt you as a child. And he chooses to use you to now bring hope to your neighborhood, to your cities, or your towns, or your townships, or whichever, how you're going to describe that. And ultimately to our whole country, and to the world, to Chiang Mai. As we obey God's command, out of loving response to him, and as we tell other folks about what God's done. So if your picture of the good life is what God has shown us in Christ, and in the scriptures, then your choices begin to reflect that. And we can, we can bear those difficulties that I mentioned in a very different way. If the good life is being a hero or being happy or having stuff, I promise you, you will never have the good life. But because Jesus was raised to life as a promise and a guarantee of what is to come for all of us who believe and follow him, all of us who have done like these ladies did and be baptized to be buried with him and raised to newness of life. We don't have to just live for the next best thing. We know that the good life will come. And we can experience the good life even now as we trust Jesus and live in obedience. But what do you expect of the Messiah? Does Jesus subvert your expectations of strength, of leadership, of sacrifice, of love. I pray that you will be drawn to savor the ways that Jesus subverts the world's expectations and not be turned away by his hard teaching. Martin Luther reminds us that there is no one who does not think he can correct God's word. There is nobody who doesn't think at some point they would correct God's word. We'd write the story a little bit better, maybe tweak this little part, especially when it comes to our lives, right? We'd write this part a little bit more romantic 
And this part, a little bit less epic, because it was crazy in that time of life. And then Luther further says, we cannot help haggling with God in our nature, saying, look at these things I've done apart from Jesus, as if that's going to count for anything. Let God tell the story that he's telling. He wants you to be his child, to be an heir with Christ, to trust him to provide, to trust him no matter what. So may your life reflect the story that you're living into, just as Jesus' choices reflect the story that he was living into. And finally, let me challenge you. Do, and you will believe. That sounds rather counterintuitive, doesn't it? And yet, that is exactly what Jesus challenges his hearers with. Your actions, after all, demonstrate your beliefs. So even deeper than that, though, your habits begin to reflect and shape your loves. So the actions that you do over time, repeatedly, will have a formative effect on your affections. The habits we form both reflect our priorities and shape our priorities in this like feedback loop of sorts. So as I said before, you know, we're human beings, human doings. So our actions not only demonstrate what story we're participating in, those actions reinforce it. They should remind us of it. Our actions will shape how we think about something. Our actions will help us understand and will help us both understand and demonstrate our belief. So as we do the will of the Father, following Jesus, we will better know him and our place in his story. So do, and you will believe. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for the opportunity that it is to gather without fear and with a multitude of brothers and sisters and to pray openly, to say the name of Jesus openly. God, we do ask that you would be glorified in the team that is going to Thailand, that they would find rich gospel fellowship. We pray that, uh, that you would even now be preparing the way for many to see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. We thank you for the ways that their lives have demonstrated the story they're living out. We thank you for the ways that Layla and Addison's lives are demonstrating the ways that they are living into the story that you've been telling. God, we ask that you would help us to believe. Help us to see and savor Jesus so that as we see him exalted, we can look to him and live. Help us to follow him as our king and as our Lord so that we too might know what it is to have fellowship with you through Jesus. We thank you for the testimony of your word, and especially the testimony that John has given us in his gospel that bears witness to Jesus' divinity, that bears witness to Jesus' work, and ultimately bears witness to his resurrection. God, help convert those stories in the back of our minds about what it is to live the good life so that we might live toward resurrection. 
that we might remember both the already and the not yet and not be bogged down in only considering the already. We thank you that your grace is sufficient and that you have shown your great love for us in Jesus, the testimony of the word and of God's people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.